Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David J.H. Wu, and today's episode features the team behind Cardinal Kit, now known as Spezi, an open source framework for digital health applications and research. Spezi is housed in the Stanford Bayer Center for Biodesign and is directed by Dr. Oliver Alami with Dr. Vishnu Ravi as lead architect. Also joining us on this interview is postdoc Paul Schmiedmeyer. I had a blast talking to this awesome team and learning more about the cool tools they're building to help anyone create new digital health apps from the ground up. I really felt the chemistry between them as builders, as well as how their different skills synergize together to create Spezi. If you're thinking about building something in the digital health space, this episode is for you. And as always, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast and join our Discord community for more. So uh, Vishnu, Oliver, and Paul, it's so great to have you on the show today. Uh, Our first question that we ask all guests is, can you tell us briefly about your paths and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Absolutely. First of all, thank you for inviting us. We're excited to be a a part of this. So, um, you know, my name's Oliver Lamy, and I'm a vascular surgeon, actually. So I think it's a little odd, Uh, not a typical pathway. But, uh, you know, have been working on, uh, on digital health applications uh, for about 10 years, just studying the sensors that are coming off smartphones, smartwatches, and patients with cardiovascular disease. And, um, you know, just building, building uh, Carnal Kit and now Spezi over the years, uh, it became clear with the latest advances that there's great potential uh, with machine learning and AI, uh, not only with these new generative AI models, but even before that, um, uh, whether it's imaging uh, and so on. So I was just super excited and interested in the line I'll, I always give is, you know, how do we optimize or maximize the potential for all this technology? Because um, as we'll get into later, you know, sometimes the technology is not the hard part. You know, it's the implementing mm-hmm. translation that's the hard part. So yeah. get into that later. I'll stop there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can go next. Um, my name is Paul Schmiedmeier. I did a PhD in computer science back in Munich, Germany. And uh, so my background is really from the computer science domain, which is kind of nice in our team. We have really the full uh, width of like medical expertise and computer science expertise right here on the podcast and uh, in our team. And I'm approaching this from an angle of how to apply the fundamental ideas that are existing in computer science, sometimes for decades, and how to apply this to the digital health and medicine domain. And um, I did some seminars back in Munich, which were about applied machine learning. So really the question, like, is it actually worth doing machine learning for some problems? Is it maybe mm-hmm. an expert system? Is it maybe better to um, do an old-fashioned algorithm in that case. Um, or if you're looking at machine learning, what's the best mechanism, what's the best use for these technologies? And especially also looking in the in the digital health domain. And um, I joined Stanford as a postdoctoral researcher here. And now since, well, well about a year actually, mm-hmm. um, we've been really working on um, the Carnal Kit ecosystem and transformed it into what we now call SPESI, which is our new modularized architecture, which for example, also includes models for machine learning and really trying to help in that intersection, especially around mobile applications and connections to the EHR system. And um, yeah, Vishnu is really our expert in that in that uh, space. So you can go next. <laughs> well, thank you, Paul and Oliver. Um, 
thank you again, David, for having me on the podcast. This is awesome. I um, I guess my story kind of begins when I was a kid. I was always passionate about coding. I started coding when I was about seven or eight years old. Wow. <laughs> my mother is a physician, so some of my earliest work was in, uh, you know, in the healthcare space. I got to work on some projects with her. And that's where I kind of saw the potential in um, at the intersection of, of uh, you know, computer science and medicine, because back then, uh, most of the systems were very, very basic, very rudimentary, you know, just basically copying, um, you know, physical chart, but into the computer, for example. And uh, we hadn't really heard about things like machine learning and AI and trying to make predictions based on data and, and things like that. So I was really excited about the potential. And so then I went into medical school with that lens of trying to figure out how I can apply my computer science programming skills to medicine. And uh, one of the earliest projects I worked on as a medical student was creating a conversational agent for an electronic health record system. And at the time, this was, you know, 2013, wow. very much in its infancy. So I was one of the first people to do this. Alexa had just come out. Um, it wasn't that good, but it worked. Uh, got it out there. And uh, learned a lot in the process. Um, also developed a um, an algorithm for basically uh, prioritizing clinical documents and extracting, um, you know, entities from unstructured health data. Because you see, that there's a lot of unstructured health data out there locked up in notes and, you know, uh, uh, what's it called, reports and things like that. So there was a big need for for creating algorithms that can actually like read that data and and structure that information. So I did a lot of that kind of work in medical school as well. Uh, after medical school, went to residency, did uh, residency in internal medicine, and following that, started practicing internal medicine, and very shortly after, um, came upon Oliver Seam uh, working on Cardinal Kid, and I thought, this is amazing, because uh, I'd spent my whole life building digital health applications. Um, now it's been 10 years since I built my first one as a medical student, and uh, every single time, you know, you have to start from scratch, you have to assemble things together. And there's just a lot of uh, boilerplate that goes into it. And when I saw Cardinal Kid, I thought this is amazing because we can start with this kind of like um, pre-configured architecture and build on top of it rather than trying to reinvent the wheel every time you want to make an app. So I got really excited by that, joined the team, and I've been working for the past two, three years. And we'll tell you more about Cardinal Kit, which is now Spezzy, and uh, everything that you know went on behind it. But really excited about the fact that we've been able to expand it now to 20 plus projects that we actually are working on ourselves with different research wow. and a lot of other institutions around the country. Um, actually, Paul was in Germany. He found us um, online through our GitHub, contributed, and we ended up uh, bringing him to the U.S. So he's American now. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you poached him. We poached him. Um, but then since then, we've recently been back to Germany and we've made some connections with some uh, institutes over there. We're really excited about using Cardinal Kit and Spezi. So uh, yeah, it's been it's been a whirlwind over the past uh, two to three years, and I'm really excited about where where we're going next, especially with the machine learning work that Paul and Oliver were talking about. I think Vishnu, you know, when it comes to data science uh, and healthcare, you talked a lot about unstructured data. You need to talk a little more because you have such a high skill level, I think. Yes. When and, and also passion around data standards, interoperability. And you know how important that is when you're doing this kind of work. I, you need to talk a little bit about, you know, the experience you had either with OpenM Health and beyond. I mean, you're, I think you're very skilled in that arena. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, thank, uh, thank you, Oliver. That's plenty. Work and that's important. I think standards and and that was 
you we baked your that expertise into the framework. Exactly. I think so I need you need to talk about that. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I think one of the issues historically in, you know, healthcare technology is that there have been there has been a lack of interoperability and, and data standard. And so you have lots of different systems that are storing and representing data in different ways. And that makes data analysis and machine learning and all these sorts of things more difficult. And recently we've seen many standards gaining traction. Um, for example, HL7 Fire is a standard that you may have heard about. Um, I have not. Well, what is that? Oh, great. Okay. Well, that's called HL7. For our listeners too. <laughs> it's going to be the rest of the podcast. HL7 <laughs> <laughs> is a standards body, an international standards body that's re responsible for creating a lot of different standards that have been adopted in the healthcare industry. And um, the latest standard that they've developed is called uh, FHIR for FHIR. It stands for Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. And the kind of motivation behind that was to create a standard that could be used for different healthcare systems to exchange information in a modern manner, uh, similar to other systems on the web, like uh, you know any any kind of website or web server or any other kind of system you um, you know. You would build an application to send or receive data from as a developer. You would you normally use like a what's called a REST API, and the data is usually sent in a format called JSON. And these were not common in the healthcare space and healthcare software. And so HL7 Fire kind of brought these like uh, modern technologies to um, to healthcare to make it easier for these systems to communicate, make it easier for third parties who are developing applications that want to work with electronic health record systems or insurance APIs or anything like that to be able to connect and to be able to share uh, exchange data, basically, because the data is represented in this kind of universal format, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's not perfect, but um, the idea is that there is a, a, a universal kind of format that can be used to exchange data. And, and when we developed our system, specifically SPESI, what, uh, what we did is we baked, H we baked standards specifically into the core of it. And the idea is that, and, and Paul can tell you more about that because this is something that uh, Paul did a lot of work on structuring this, this whole concept. That the, the idea at a high level is that SPESI is made up of um, a number of different modules that each have uh, its own functionality. Like there are modules for sourcing data from devices. There are modules from uh, for creating user interfaces or uh, like displaying surveys for patients to be able to fill in information there are modules for being able to export data to a cloud database or, or another type of data storage provider or store it locally um, or or um, send it to a machine learning model for some sort of analysis or prediction, right? So we have built modules for all of these things and the modules are taking in data in different formats. They maybe have to put data out in a different format, but internally they all use a standard and that allows us to kind of make modules that are interchangeable, which is actually really, really important because um, we don't want to build those kind of monolithic applications, really. Like, so the original Cardinal Kit was in some way a monolithic application. And if you wanted to make changes and you wanted to expand it, it wasn't quite as easy. But now, because we have this modular architecture, you can kind of plug and play different components on top of the structure. You can swap out different components. And because of at the core of it, there's a central shared repository that speaks the same language, the data standard. All these modules can interoperate. And... The standard could be anything, so we haven't we don't force you to use HL7 Fire. You can use another standard that I've um, been you know working on for some time called OpenM Help, which is a great standard for 
representing mobile health data that comes from wearables and, and mobile devices. Uh, it's really good for that. So you can use a standard like that. You can, you can uh, adapt your own standard to this setup. But what we provide out of the box is support for HL7 Fire. And that's really important because all of these EHR systems on the market, like Epic, like Cerner, Athena Health, Allscripts, you name it, they all have support for HL7 Fire. And there's even legislation that mandates that you know any healthcare system or provider that has data available in an electronic format has to make that data available to patients by means of an API. Um, and the format that those APIs take is Fire. So that makes it really easy for you to build digital health applications using SPESI that can interoperate with all these other systems out there, consume data, you know, and send data back. And that's a really big thing that's been missing in healthcare for a long time. Sorry, I spoke wow. a lot. That's an area that I'm very passionate about. So <laughs> No, yes. And I can't, David, I can't highlight enough how the these literally the legislation that that uh Vishu is talking about. The requirement to expose a Fire API literally was December of last year, where that passed. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness. Yes, in December of this year, they need you need to expand, or there's a requirement to expand the data elements that are exposed. Initially, it was like 18 elements or something, yeah. but it's supposed to be almost all the, you know, all uh, records are supposed to be exposed. So, in a way, there are these huge tailwinds, and we're on kind of this precipice of like major opportunity for innovators such as yourself, you know, to build on top of EHRs uh, and bring value to the consumer, the patient, or, or you know, or other third parties. Yeah, I uh, I feel like I'm almost talking to like an Avengers team of, you know, you, <laughs> you each are, have bring such unique, uh, like, you know, your own skill set and you're building this, this awesome thing that anyone can use. It, it kind of feels like the Avengers of like of the healthcare and right. you know digital health space are being made in my head right now. Okay, I'm just interesting. And and so I was wondering if, if we could kind of zoom back, step, take a step back, and if you could tell the story of how uh, what was before Cardinal Kit, now Spezzy, how it started and how it's grown to what it's become today. So it was pretty organic. Yeah, it was back in 2012 is when I first came to Stanford and started doing a lot, uh, run, uh, running these digital health studies. Um, in patients with cardiovascular disease. And, you know, it was pretty hard. It was very expensive, took a lot of time, uh, not only to build the applications, it was hard to find developers, dealing with the hospital IT, right? Getting through the privacy security oh, yeah. um, audits and so on. It was, uh, it was a pretty arduous task. But once you have, you know, once I did that once, you know, a lot of other faculty members would come to me and say, I, I want to build a digital health application or I want to run a research study. Can you help me? What do I need to do? And after literally after like the 10th or 15th or 20th time, somebody came to me and I had to wow outline everything and like take him from zero to one. It became really evident like, man, we're re reinventing the wheel every single time we're doing this. So there was a brilliant um, CS undergrad San Santiago Gutierrez, um, who actually, um, you know, I teamed up with and he helped me kind of develop Cardinal Kit, which in its earliest form, as, as, uh, Vishnu mentioned, it was really just a template application leveraging existing open sourcing, um, frameworks uh, and iOS like research kit, you know, um, uh, 
and the um, uh, from Apple. And so that's that's kind of how things got going. And then um, really the catalyst to really develop it was uh, that uh, we noticed there was a need also to teach a class. So I teach two classes. One is called Basic Biodesign for Digital Health, where we just teach the fundamentals of um, innovation through the biodesign needs-based approach um, using kind of a digital health lens. And then we noticed that a lot of teams would have these great ideas, but they they needed support to build whatever concepts they came up with. So we came up, it's uh, in, a, in its fifth year now called uh, Building for Digital Health. And so for that class, we kind of created this Cardinal Kit framework so that the teams would have some something to start with. It's only a 10-week course. And that's how it all started. Um, that's how Cardinal Kit started. And the nice thing is that every year we teach the class. We have about five projects that we build that are sponsored by faculty in the hospital. Uh, so they're real-world projects that faculty want to deploy. Wow. And um, so it's almost like a forced function to kind of force us to update the code base, crush the bugs, um, and, you know, just keep up with the latest and greatest. And so that I'll stop there. That's kind of how it started. And then Vishnu joined the teaching team, obviously contributed quite a bit, not only on the teaching side, but within the framework. And then um, last year when Paul joined, is when we realized, you know, it's so, we noticed that a lot of the students would spend, you know, a lot of the time starting with a Cardinal Kit template application, but then having to break it apart. Uh -huh. they'll, they'll say, oh, I don't need the Bluetooth connection for my use case. And so they would take some time to break that apart. So we said, why don't we just modularize it? So you only pull the, or use or leverage the Bluetooth connection module if you need it. And that's kind of what, Paul did. And so we decided so there wouldn't be confusion to rename it to Spezi, uh, the latest framework, you know. So that's that brings us up to, I don't know if you guys want to add anything else. You can add another, you yeah, know. Yeah. I think it would be good if Paul can kind of like talk a little bit about that whole process of, of how he came up with the architecture and like, you know, what kind of issues. And also the name. I'm curious, you know. And Spezzi, the name, there's a really, story like he came up with that name and there's a really good story behind that name. So yeah, go ahead, Paul. First of all, maybe to start with the name Spezi sounds a bit uh, interesting, I think, especially for an English-speaking um, audience. But um, it's actually a German name or a Bavarian name, which is like short, short name for buddy, which is actually kind of nice. Oh, yeah, that's with, nice. With a framework of smaller modules, which ideally all work together as buddies to really help <laughs> and uh, facilitate a larger digital health ecosystem. And uh, in addition to that, it's a very good, very southern German drink, which is like a mix of uh, Coke and uh, like an orange soda, which is not that common here in the US. I've never really seen Sounds it here. pretty good. Pretty yeah, good yeah. drink. I can recommend it. Can I correct you, Paul? Goes to so, orange soda. <laughs> All right, I just want to correct you there. Orange soda in the U.S. apparently is not the same as it is in Europe. In the U.S., apparently, it's just like 99% sugar. Yeah. <laughs> like, because I tried to make spaghetti at home and it tasted completely wrong, like nothing like it was in Germany. Then I went online and I looked up recipes and they said, no, don't use American orange soda. You have to use like a sparkling lemonade. Uh, or something like that. And that was actually much closer to the actual Spezi. So for anyone who's trying to make a drink at home. <laughs> so uh, and we can always celebrate with that drink when we when we when we're out like when we go to Germany. It's always a good drink. It's highly highly recommended. And that like sort of like 
like uh, idea of like having multiple bodies that work together on like building a digital health application. I think really so it, like translates this very well into like what we want to achieve with Spezi, which is, um, I mean, if you look at larger scale systems, it was like a lot of part of my, my PhD as well, especially looking at distributed systems, but software system in general, and uh, which I assume that uh, like every, every listener here who has built software before might have seen that happen a lot is that when you start building them and you start maintaining them, they grow by size. They grow into more complex systems, harder to maintain systems. And in software engineering, what you really try to do is we try to decouple specific functionalities into smaller modules, which you can use independently and you can also swap out. So a lot of the stuff that we did at the beginning when, when I joined the team was looking at the current kernel kit template application and really try to identify what are the core needs there? What's the important thing that is addressed by that framework? And how can we separate these out into smaller components? And when we think about the digital health system, and especially in the context of machine learning, we have multiple stages that data goes through. So you have like a data collection process most of the time, which is in our case, a patient reported outcomes or surveys or schedule, like anything that that scheduled surveys or tasks, anything that patient needs to do on a regular basis that they can manually enter into the application. This can be like digital biomarkers, stuff that you get from uh, like Google Health Connect or Apple Health Kit, which is like all the passively collected data that's from your smartwatch, from your smartphone, a lot of the stuff that is easy to collect and really passively collect uh, enables you to get objective measurements from patients as well as some other data sources like elements we have like patients doing workouts some other data that can be collected from connected devices we have connected devices that use bluetooth connections to get more information when you actually do a test or when you walk around and all these different other aspects and all these different data sources can be separated into smaller modules that try to collect the data and then as visually to really try to bring this into a standardized format because any data processing any data any data scientist that you have will tell you that it's important to have data in a structured format mm. and if compared across different data sources and then actually feed it into any type of algorithm can it be an expert system can it be a machine learning system if you have some structured data and you have it pre-processed in that sense just makes the whole uh, workflow way easier so this is really where the standard comes in. After we have all the different data sources in place, all the different modules in place, we have the standard representation, HL7 Fire, OpenM Health, all these other components that are then used to process the data, provide users feedback about the data, which is really crucial. Like if you have a digital health solution, if it just collects all your data and never really gives you anything back, it's like uh, it's a black box for users. Yeah, it doesn't really improve usability. So it's all about like presenting the data back to the user, making sure that they understand what has been collected, making sure that all the permissions that they've given to the application are actually adhered to. So we only collect data that is really needed for the, for the study context or for the research context that we're looking at. And then really forwarding that data into um, data storage providers like cloud storage mechanisms, or sometimes even just a local storage. If you don't want to send something to the cloud, it's totally fine and depends on how your IRB or your, how your privacy policy is, is constructed in that sense. So then bring this into a context where somebody can do analysis on this, where somebody can take a close look at this. And this whole process, and we've looked at this different process from different applications, will then form the architecture of what we call SPESI. Um, because we like we still maintain Carlin Kit, maybe to be fully transparent about this, it's still an existing project. We have more than 20 projects who've used it, who are successfully building on top of that template application. And we continue to maintain this. It's like a learning from software development, you can't just shut down software and like, mm -hmm. like hope mm -hmm. 
people move on, we will still maintain it. But the new architects that we have in place and all the new projects that we're onboarding, that we're collaborating with, build on this new architecture, which doesn't share any code with the, with the previous code base that we have there, really then helps you to think about your digital health applications in these different smaller modules, in that workflow from collecting data, standardizing it, forwarding to cloud storage providers. And then this is really the topic of your, your, your talk here and your podcast to bring this to algorithms, to machine learning algorithms, to take a look at the data, process mm -hmm. the data, and then provide that feedback back to the user. This processing can happen on device. I mean, that's really the key. Now, sometimes I'm just, you want to do to privacy, you want to do it on device, or like in a cloud system here at Stanford, Stanford we have an M Health platform, for example, to enable you, you know, all these different mechanisms of storing and processing the data or somewhere else. So that's, um, yeah longer story of how to think about yeah i mean at the basic arc of the story is literally starting with one study having other people you know see identifying the need that there needs to be a, a easier way for people lower to lower the threshold activation energy to be able to deploy an app so then the class was big i think the class mm -hmm. is a major function to help reinforce and support and maintain and update still the framework it still does even today um, and then, uh, you know, that I guess the last piece of the story of the arc is the modularization that we've done as an update. The, the modularization to me, it, it almost feels like uh, Lego blocks. You know, it seems like you have different module components that are like Lego blocks that are really good at, you know, whether it's processing the data or, you know, like you said, st cloud storage, it's like they have their, their own unique roles and you're building each of the different blocks for that. Is, is that that's that's actually the the same analogy that I use when I'm trying to explain this to people. And I think one of the really cool things is that because this is an open source project and an open source ecosystem, um, anybody can build their own Lego block. Like wow, you can Lego blocks for you know your particular project, your particular need, your particular device, and then you can either you can keep that for yourself or you can you know send that back to us and we can make it available for the entire community. So the idea is we're trying to create this ecosystem of modules that can support all sorts of different use cases and everyone in the community can benefit from someone else who has built something that maybe they also need. And wow. the idea in an open source project in general is that because there are so many people around the country and around the world using it every day for their projects, they will find bugs, they will be able to update things and they'll be able to contribute. And so the entire project keeps growing and improving over time. Wow. That's awesome. I was wondering, could you tell us some of your favorite applications that you've seen built? Oh, that's a tough one. I think we have to, I mean, we never have a favorite. We can't. We can't. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> but I think one that, um, God, I, I think the Buddy the buddy app is pretty cool. And this, and, and the reason I like this story is that it, it really, it kind of highlights kind of what Cardinal Kit Spezi is, is, was built for. Okay. So, uh, we had this medical student, his name was Blinn. He was, a, he was, had actually done a master's, I think in bioengineering at Columbia. And as part of his master's thesis, he had developed kind of this bespoke sensor, uh, like a wrist worn device or sensor for, for kids with cerebral palsy. And part of the therapy or treatment for kids with cerebral palsy, they have weakness and, and kind of rage of motion uh, issues in their upper extremities often. And to help with that, they're supposed to do a lot of these exercises. And so he built 
I don't even think he had an application. It was just this wrist-worn device. Uh, and it was great. He was able to build that one device, and that was it. You know, he, it was hard to scale. And he he came to Stanford. He's like, okay, I want to, I want to, you know, mass produce this device or figure out a way to scale this. How can I do it? And he came to like a monitoring device, or it, it basically had an accelerometer in it, and it basically provided feedback to the kids to, as to whether their the force was strong enough with the movements, things like that. It helped. Oh, at the time that he developed this, first of all, it was like a brick. It was literally this big. And the kids kids could only use it in the lab, and it had to be tethered to a computer that ran Mel. <laughs> so, I mean, it was an amazing invention, no question about it. But the yeah. fact is that it, you know, it was limited to a research lab at that point. So he took, he actually took my original by design for digital health class. And in that class, I kind of learned about his passions, what he had done. So we said, Blinn, you know, take the building course. Why don't you instead use an Apple Watch? You know, it has accelerometers. We can get access to those accelerometers uh, and, and you know, build an application around the therapy that you want to provide for the kids. Wow. And it was pretty remarkable. Uh, I mean, he, he got a huge team around him. Uh, they were part of the class. They were able to build a really, I, I thought it was pretty remarkable. They were able to create real-time feedback on the phone so the kids would move and you would see that these lines go up and down and with that real-time feedback you can imagine you know if your force wasn't strong enough you you know it would give you that immediate feedback yeah therapy he had videos uh with, with instructions on which uh movements to you know proceed from one to the next so i i don't know i that's one project i want to highlight because again the the part I want to highlight the most is that it was, it provided the kind of, it took this project that was incredibly hard, right? He faced so many hills and challenges to scale this and we were able to get him, you know, get him to a point where he could scale it. So yeah. to me, that's pretty exciting. I don't know. You guys wow. talk about a project. That's the coolest. Uh, I think what's cool about that is, you know, now that he's built this app in such a way that any Apple Watch and any iPhone can do it, right? So it's something that you go to the App Store, you download it, you install it, and then you can just start using it. So that it's that bridge from something that was revolutionary but would never have made it out of the lab to something that can be used by anyone anywhere with off-the-shelf technology. I think, I think that's something we really focus on is translation. And, you know, as you'll find over time, there's so... Oh, many labs that have an amazing algorithm, an amazing model, you know, you know, connected to, you know, their computer, their desktop, their research facility, their research lab, you know, translating that, scaling that, the MIML ops is actually pretty challenging. But I, I want to focus on the projects. We'll probably end with your, maybe you can talk about health GPT or. Yeah, that was actually how I originally heard about. Right, but I think it was... we should talk maybe one more. We have time, or do we have time? Maybe uh, Vishnu, you talk about one other project that would go to Health GPT. Which one? Well, you want to see question the Derm? I, I like Golara's project. That's a really interesting one. What do you? Yeah, think? that is an interesting one. So the idea is, uh, I would even I don't know story about her being written up. <laughs> I got written up. Oh, I'll start the story. So we had a dermatologist, I'm not going to name names. She had a dermatologist. No, she did nothing wrong. Dermatologist had a patient come from Chico to the Bay Area for eczema. She needed like allergy, allergen testing, like a patch test. I think she was charged like $48,000 for that test. Wow. 
And then she somehow made it to the news and was written up. And I think this dermatologist was like determined, okay, I we got to come up with a cheaper way, home-based way to be able to, you know, offer these eczema, you know, these allergen tests, these patch tests from home. So I'll stop there. And then Vishnu, you can. So she yeah. applied to the class. She was one of the people, one of the professors that applied to the class with a project. Exactly. So she... Basically, when she came to us, she said, you know, this is a big problem because um, very few people in the country actually have access to the patch testing, which will, you know, help them elucidate the actual cause of the of the eczema, of the dermatitis. And I think the figure she gave us was about 2% of people who should have, be getting this testing done actually are able to do it. One wow. Just because, you know, they don't, they don't live in the vicinity of a clinic to, that can do this because they have to physically adhere uh, patches to your skin, and then you have to go in and get checked on multiple occasions. So if you live far away from a clinic that, you know, has this facility, then you can't really get that done. So the idea was that we'd be able to ship out these kits to to the patients at home, and then they could use a mobile app, which would basically allow, one, walk them through the process of actually adhering it properly to their skin in the proper orientation and everything, um, and then be able to take photographs on a daily basis that were good enough to be analyzed, um, you know, by a physician or by a machine learning algorithm uh, to detect whether or not the test is positive or negative, right? Um, so what happened, as Oliver said, is that she brought this project to our class and kind of assembled a team around it. And the solution that they came up with based on, on SPSI was to use augmented reality and um, certain stripes on the patches so that the the application could <clears throat> actually be used to help the patient line it up properly. Oh. Mm -hmm. And then they could also do some other things in the application with the camera to make sure that when the patients took the photo, the lighting was even, you know, the, the orientation of the patches was in the correct manner so that it would be easier to see for the for the person reading it for or you know get better results from the algorithm. So they were able to like make a make a whole comprehensive application that can take them through the entire process of doing this testing at home by themselves and then transmitting the the results, you know, to remotely to a dermatologist who can then read them and then get them diagnosed. And that's forty thousand uh, dollars, as Oliver mentioned, would be the cost to potentially to get that done in person. And this would be a small fraction of that and can is address the other ninety eight percent that just don't even have access to it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I think that's a pretty cool project, and we were able to build. I mean, the now granted, the it's not production ready after the ten week student project, but they were able to. You know, they had an application. It could, you know, use the AR kit to, you know, automatically take a picture when it was in the correct orientation. It was pretty, pretty amazing, I thought. Um, and then you had the correct lighting and so on, uh, and you know had all these surveys and all the, everything else, and the data was in the back end to be viewed. Like they had a dashboard, a dashboard images, you know, and they had a dashboard for the physicians to be able to view exactly. that. That's pretty incredible in ten weeks, and most of yeah. the times, no iOS, you know, experience. No, that's odd. Wow. <laughs> All right. And most none of the students had ever made a mobile application uh, for digital health. There were a few in the class who had built a mobile application before, but zero for digital health. And so it's amazing that in ten weeks they actually are not able, not only able to build something but something that can go on to actually be used in real clinical care and, and research. You guys are like your own incubator. <laughs> <laughs> we just facilitate the things. All right, Paul, talk about 
which was kind of a more of a research project. This didn't come from the health GPT wasn't a um, something that came from faculty sponsored yeah. or student, you know, anything like that. We could talk about that a little bit. I think that's another very good example. First of all, how it's basically just enables you to prototype these types of applications and build these types of applications faster. And the thing where we are also really passionate about uh, in 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 the sense of like trying out new avenues of of exploring health data because. All of the time, maybe to give you some some background or some context in that sense, like um, as a medical professional, you have pretty good idea of how to look at data and how to assess the data. And you have tools like machine learning models in a clinical context that helps you to understand data that you have in front of you, or you have your expert knowledge to 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 make it available to you. But I think on a day to day life, for those people out there who might not possess that knowledge. It's sometimes hard to take a look at your health records or the information that you can, might even get out of the hospital system um, with these fire APIs that Vishnu talked about at the, at the very beginning of the podcast, or even just the data that's stored on your phone. And um, the idea was really, and we had a really talented student, Varun, who really um, built the first prototype there, was to assess the capabilities. And I know that this is a buzzword right now, there aren't large language models, but I think this is <laughs> we see a good application in for these models, for these conversational interactions, especially on health data, to, to help people to understand their health data, to ask follow-up questions, and to really make it as accessible as possible to everybody. And the idea around health GPT and another application that we've built, which we call LLM of FIRE, which is the FIRE standard that we've talked about, really tries to enable um, people to access their health data and to make it explainable. Um, so health GPT access the data that's stored on your phone through your step count, how much you've slept uh, last night, um, all the different uh, activities that, that's stored in there. It provides you like a contextual, like conversational interface to query that data and to ask follow-up questions. What does it mean for my health? Like how can I improve my sleep? Um, how can you see these different elements? And using those interactions with a large language model, using pre-prompting and adding additional prompts to feed that health data to the large language model, we can really assess that um, that interaction. And um, I think even more fascinating and even more like um, like bringing this accessibility aspect into the picture. And we took a second look at the data that you can get out of your healthcare provider, like from these fire APIs that that Vishnu talked about. Um, we build an application that we call LMN Fire, which allows you to pull these health records through the Apple Health app. Is it called LLM on Fire or LLM on, on Fire? So yeah, yeah. That's language well as well. Oh, that's that's you funny. Do, I mean, the fire community, do you think it's fire? It's pronounced yeah. <laughs> fire. There's all these puns about things being on fire, and like, so I was at a conference where the AMIA conference last year, where like, you know, um, a lot of the attendees are uh, fire experts or interested in fire. Uh, and someone pulled a fire alarm, and you should have seen that Twitter with all the pumps. Uh, that's funny. The fire alarm. You, you can't believe we have it on fire, which allows you to get help data to a fire form. If you have research, oh, kid on. So we're, like, we're really like on fire with these tools. Yeah, I'm going to stop there. Um, but really, uh, you have these health records, which are most of the time provided in a machine readable format, hard to interpret, contain medical information that might not be 
accessible for somebody who might not have that education. And um, by really trying to list these things down and beyond like a graphical representation, really ask you to allow follow-up questions, use the context, provide that context to a large language model. What we think is really powerful and what we really want to investigate further with these research projects and what to start spark a conversation around there is like, how can we use these machine learning tools to make this data as accessible as possible? Maybe even for people who might not have English as their first language, it might be better to translate stuff into Spanish. This is things that we've explored and want to like look into. And all these different capabilities are really interesting. And by having this on your mobile phone, which everybody had, everybody has like a smartphone, most people have a smartphone in their pocket. This really makes access, understanding your health data and really access to your health data, um, yeah, really accessible to everybody, which is real, uh, really interesting project and what we wanted to discuss with these different elements. Of course, and we should talk about this later on, also concerning privacy, how to interact with these models, how to make sure that you run these things mm -hmm. on device and all these different other yeah, aspects. But before, yeah, before you get into the, no, no, before you get into the privacy, I want you to continue. This is really good. I think just to highlight, we're, again, we're always focused on the, the end user who's not necessarily a physician or a clinical specialist. It's more like, how, how can I, as a consumer, better digest, better understand that all the inform information, it's hard. Right. Even yeah. honest, uh, yes, Apple has great user interfaces for all this, you know, data that's on the phone. But at the same time, let's say you want to compare your activity data to your sleep data. I think an LLM can do that much better or has a greater capacity than me trying to go back and forth, you know, mm -hmm. what my sleep pattern's done or how my sleep pattern maybe is affected by my activity or vice versa. Or is it related or not? As an example, or, or more importantly, let's say I get a note. Right, a clinic end of and uh, a summary of a visit, visit summary note, you know, and I, there are a lot of these medical there's there are medical terms in there that I just don't understand. I think it provides a really interesting way for a, a consumer, health consumer, to better understand and try to, you know, digest all that information and try to make sense of it. So that's what we're really excited about. And as Paul said, even if it's just a simple translation. To Spanish. I mean, if you're going yeah. to Silicon Valley, you better, I don't know how your Spanish is, but <laughs> you got to know Spanish because that's the yeah. number one thing is like literally uh, literacy, you know, English literacy and um, is a challenge. And so anyway, there are a lot of opportunities. I don't know if you wanted to add anything visually to that, but I think we're very, very, and you know, when we re released the Health GPT, probably the number one concern and question and comment by far, I would say 80% or more was, was all about privacy. Like, are you crazy? I'm never going to send my health data to health <laughs> open AI. Are you nuts? <laughs> you know, you're, you guys are insane. And even though it's just a research project. So I think, I think the concerns are real and fair, you know, about privacy. And so I, I think you can talk about what our next kind of the re the work we're doing this summer. I don't know. Yeah. How, how did you respond to those people who would? Well, well, I mean, how do you know, David? Um, it's not a fun thing to do, um, but sometimes you just have to. Would you say fighting the trolls? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. It is. I feel like the field is on fire right now. I know. No, but seriously, those are very, those are very legitimate concerns around privacy. And I think, like, we put this project out there just to, well, we, we started this research project just to see what's possible with these models, right? And, you know, 
um, models in the cloud are the like the, the largest and most capable models. And that gave us kind of like a benchmark for like, what is what can we actually do? And now we're trying to figure out ways to make it more privacy preserving. So one of the things, and I, I'll defer to Paul to kind of go over some of the stuff we're going to be doing this summer, but I think one of the things we're looking into, first of all, when we created HellGPT, um, HellGPT does not send personally identifiable data to the cloud at all, actually. It sends aggregated statistics about your activity and sleep and things like that. And then we went one step further to think about how we might, um, you know, narrow down what needs to be sent based on the question that's being asked. So the idea here is that, you know, um, when you prompt the LLM, you can actually kind of create a chain or, or a, a function. Yeah. Open AI, rather, has functions. So you can kind of say like, hey, this is the question that the user is asking. What pieces of information would help you answer this question? And then you can reach into the database on the phone and the HealthKit or, or HealthConnect and just pull out those pieces of information and not necessarily send lots of stuff that you don't need to. So I think that's something that we worked on too, which is really another way to kind of protect privacy. But I think the the most interesting piece of this is being able to dive into this treasure trove of data and surface the pieces that are relevant to be able to answer a user's question. I think that's a big deal because there's so much data sitting on phones, sitting in the chart uh, on the clinician side or in the, your MyChart patient portal app, which you really would never be able to go through all of that and understand all of that on your own. And with a model like this, you have the opportunity to ask about, ask detailed questions, surface data and trends and correlations that you may not have realized exist, right? And that could be helpful for your own, you know, self-knowledge or disease management, your, for your clinician to understand why things are going on because there might, when you're in a clinic visit, I'll keep it short, but like when you're in a clinic visit, as a clinician, I have 10, 15 minutes to talk to somebody. You're going to see that David, when you get, you know, start your residency, you have very little time. And in the middle of that time, you have to write a note. You have to click all these check boxes. You've got messages coming in. You've got, you know, someone coming in saying like the patient, next patient is upset because you're running late. So in, in the middle of that, trying to make sure that you get all the information you need from the history from the patient in order to make a correct diagnosis is super hard, especially when, like, they may not remember everything that happened, yeah. not, but their phone probably does know what happened. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I would also, I, I think really important on the privacy part, I mean, the way we handled a lot of the trolls, uh, ironically, literally a week before we released, I believe OpenAI said, okay, we're willing to sign a business associate agreement, a BAA. I don't know if you've heard of that before. Oh, I think I remember their announcement. Yep. Exactly. So if you're, um, if we were, you know, in a covered entity, we wanted them to use their service and such, you know, I could, we could sign a BAA with them, which is HIPAA compliant or would be HIPAA compliant. Uh, and then also they said you can opt out of sharing you know, your, uh, your data, they do hold on to data for 30 days in case there's some just activity, but then they would not use it to train their algorithm. So, you know, they're, these are kind of soft, soft things you could do to protect yourself. But I think the real, the real money or the Holy grail would be what Paul is going to be working on this summer. So it's, um, I think, I think all these privacy and security concerns are very valid. And I think especially if it comes down to your health data, I mean, that's the most personal data that you can have. And I think we should really be um, careful of how we interact with that data. And um, one uh, mechanism that we've seen in computer science for quite a while now is like trying to move computations and elements 
more to the edge of networks to where the actual devices are, where the actual data is located at. And in that case, that is the mobile phone um, because you already have the mobile, like the health data um, on your mobile phone because you've downloaded it from your healthcare provider. You have obtained it through these fire APIs. And the really holy grail, as I would have said in a sense, is really trying to process that data locally. Is it oh. easy to do? Definitely not. Can you turn, can your phone turn into like a space heater if you run like a local <laughs> language model locally? <laughs> We've tried. <laughs> but at least things are progressing step by step on things that have wow. not a year ago will become possible in the next few months and will be more accessible in the next year. So what we're really trying to investigate is like, first of all, how can we try to run these models locally? And we've not only done this for this project, but it's for other projects, because ideally you try to process the data as close to where the data is actually being produced to, in, uh, to really reduce latency, first of all, and second of all, to really help privacy and security aspects, because any data that you don't really share, don't really send anywhere is better to treat it. That's yeah, I mean, there's just some LLMs that run locally now too, right? Like exactly. is it llama or alpaca. Exactly. Get all the I get all the animals mixed up. So there are numbers. Yeah, I mean, it's a challenge to run it locally on a machine, and then running it locally on your phone, which is what people really have in their pocket. So there are multiple different steps that need to be taken. But yes, exactly. This is where where it's going. And this this is really how we can address all these concerns and really build a solution that we cannot only have in our research lab and share as an open source project and like ask people to enter their own open API token to make sure that they are really in control of all the data that they're sending back and forth. And we don't really see any data. Once again, like that was never a part of the project in, in itself. But even that interaction sending into their own open API account to making sure that the connection is there might not be needed if we can already process yeah. On this side, this is really where I think the whole machine learning area and expertise is really going to move more and more towards trying to build local, maybe even specialized models. Yeah, that that actually takes me to my uh, one of our closing questions. What okay. I almost uh, in in talking with it, uh, I almost have a feeling of where you're going with it. Uh, well, how you're going to answer the okay. the question is, what do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like? in 10 to 20 years. And from what I've heard from you, it almost seems like uh, everyone is going to have their own unique spezzy or their own buddy, which is kind of their like, you know, their own health GPT on their phone that has access to their records and it has like its own LLM, like a local LLM or something in the phone. And then you can just kind of interface with your data. It's kept private because it's all on your end. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm like, Putting an answer in here. You nailed it. You nailed it. Marketing? Of course. Of course. No, 100%. You absolutely nailed it. And it'll it'll kind of be more aligned with you, right? Everyone's a little different in terms of how you want your answer. Do you want your answer in Spanish? Do you want it in English? As a very simple thing. Uh, your level of understanding. Are you, you know, whatever that may be. Uh, there's so many layers to that. But there, I think there'll be multiple AIs, you know but more local, as you said. Yeah. I think the personalization, local processing, and also like um, specific, uh, trying to address specific needs. I mean, in the end, is it going to be one large language model that's going to solve everything? Definitely not. Definitely not. It's uh, it's not the right tool for everything. It's probably not even the best tool for all the different things that we're currently using it for within research and even within our projects. But it's a very good starting point to explore in this area and to like really think of you as the owner of your health data and then giving you the capability to understand, to process, and really drive it forward 
is I think where a lot of the work in machine learning in that area is going to focus on. And there's going to be lots of innovations happening around yeah. that. And it's going to be, be be really interesting. But um, I think this is really where we want to focus on and where we see adding that context, providing that context, providing these follow-up questions, like trying to analyze all the data that's currently being processed that can help you to make early, early diagnosis and to help you to figure out if you're actually recovering after a procedure or if you need any follow-up uh, visits. This is really, I think, where the healthcare space and these local process models and elements can really make a huge, huge difference. I, I think Vishnu needs to talk about a project. I, I, I think also the future will be hybrid. You know, it's not only LLMs. I think expert systems have their place and yes. they're not going to be gone. And I think Vishnu has a great example with a, hard, a project he's working on called HardX where it doesn't make sense to use an LLM. It's more, it makes more sense because you want, you know, when you're, you have a system where you're, that's making clinical decisions, like picking the dose of medication, choosing the next medication in a blood pressure management regimen. Do you want an LMN that, that's going to be a kind of, yeah, yeah. or do you want something that hundred percent follows the guidelines? Right. Mm -hmm. So there's, I think, and Paul as well at Vishnu, that it's going to be kind of a hybrid system that there'll be times when you'll be like, okay, I'm going to go ask my expert, you know, system. I don't know, Vishnu, if you want to talk about the example of your heart X or the blood pressure management. Yeah. I mean, very briefly, I think the, the concept there is that um, we can have managed hypertension uh, remotely using a semi-automated guideline-based expert system. And essentially the idea is that patients have Bluetooth blood pressure cuffs at home. They're going to be check checking their blood pressure ideally like on a daily basis. That data will be uploaded through a mobile app to um, to Epic. And from Epic, we have a connection to an algorithm that we've built. Um, and the algorithm was built by a team of experts who've like read through the guidelines and put together a carefully crafted uh, algorithm that actually makes medication recommendations um, based on a combination of uh, blood pressure and other data from the chart, like their lab values, for example, because certain medications are, you know, affected by certain labs and, and vice versa, and also by allergies they might have, symptoms they might have, things like that. And so the system is carefully built using, you know, um, up-to-date guidelines to be able to take all that information and then synthesize recommendations for clinicians to review and act upon. And this happens constantly in the background. So normally, when we treat hypertension or any chronic condition, what happens in most cases is that a person comes in, uh, we make an adjustment, they go home, they come back in weeks, possibly even months later, we check again, we make an adjustment, and what happens in between, uh, we don't really have an opportunity to intervene, right? But here, by using the system that is constantly monitoring and constantly um, you know, adjusting, we can get better control of the condition quicker. And what's really helpful about the way the algorithm works is that it's not a black box. We know exactly how it was built. And when it gives a recommendation, it will tell the doctor exactly why it recommended that. That, for example, I saw this data point. I saw this lab value. I saw this allergy, you know, and I'm working off of this guideline. I'm on this step in this guideline. And that's why I'm recommending this. So it's completely explainable, which I think is super important in healthcare because as a doctor myself, I am not going to go to chat GPT and just throw a bunch of data into it and have it tell me what to do with the medication and just do it. I need to know where it came up with that from because this is an issue of patient safety. That, 
That's great. I like the the hybrid idea where it's, you know, sometimes use an LLM, sometimes have more professional kind of baked in guidelines. Um, I did want to close with a, a bit more of a, a personal question just to, you know, I kind of like to end interviews on just uh, with like kind of more about you question. Uh, I'm curious to the three of you, uh, what brings you joy? Um, feel free to answer that however you'd like. And yeah. In any order you like to. Yeah, I know. I, I guess, yeah, a lot of things. I think, you know, for me, um, seeing these, like the translation gives me the greatest joy. Again, there's so much excitement about the potential and the opportunity, but the, tr the actual implementation and translation is so hard. I've worked on so many digital health projects, you know, for years. And, you know, there are ma many headwinds in healthcare when it comes to digital health in particular, because, you know, we tend to be focused on prevention, early detection, uh, you know, personalized type care, which I think our current health system is not always, it's not always aligned with what the, you know, uh, what the incentives, where the incentives are. So for me, when I see these, uh, these applications actually built and translated and implemented, that that's what brings me joy in this sphere. Many other <laughs> <That's it. laughs> yeah. <Even> contacts. <laughs> yeah. I, I would say like beyond this conversation, which was a joy to, to have, <laughs> I would say uh, definitely, I think they like, having the ability to take one's knowledge and like one's expertise in my sense of the computer science knowledge and apply it to something that's meaningful. That actually makes a difference. And I think this is where we are in the healthcare domain where especially on digital health, where we have a change to have scalable solutions that can impact a lot of people and bringing this expertise together, working with people like Oliver, like Vishnu, um, really, and collaborating on these different elements to make a difference there. It's a really joyful experience, I would say. <laughs> Vishnu. I'd like to add to that. Those are really good answers. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think what brings me the most joy is like seeing something that I built in someone's hands doing something good for them, right? So like I've built a lot of digital health apps and I've been working with Oliver and Paul on all these different projects. And what really is awesome is when you see that actually deployed in a real clinical environment and you see a patient actually benefit from it and come back and say like, oh, wow, like this is awesome. I love this app or it's really changed the course of my my treatment or, or whatever it happens to be. It's that, that part of it is what really matters. And building these apps and getting them out there is such a frustrating process sometimes mm -hmm. so oops it's come through you know there's so many issues there's so many days where you think it's just not gonna launch for one reason or another there's times when you're like it's almost ready and then something breaks so all of that is worth it when it's finally out there and you actually get results back and you get people coming in and saying i i love your app this is awesome it's completely changed the way that i'm managing my condition or, or whatever it is like that like there, there's really no feeling better than that, honestly, in digital health. Wow. I really want to ask one last extra question. Uh, and, and the question is, I, I feel like you've probably seen so many teams try and build these apps. I'm curious if, if there's like a, a secret sauce or there's something that, you know, um, like, is there a common denominator in successful teams like that are able to build something? Don't give up. Number one. <laughs> Uh, use Spezzy. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to name the names, but there are a lot of, uh, you know, having a, 
having a developer team or people that have healthcare expertise is worth its weight in gold. I know we've seen so many teams go with like, oh, I have a very inexpensive dev team in Africa or whatever, or we're going to use this professional dev team. They've never done healthcare, but they're professional. Hmm. Disaster. Absolutely. <laughs> Disaster. Well, <laughs> oh, I mean, talk to the Epic team and they're like, you got to do this in fire, this fire format. They're like, what's fire? You know, I mean, there's just, I don't know. I'll, That's true. That's I'll great. Let, yeah. I'll let you guys, I'll let you guys add to that. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think that bringing, I mean, I think we're a very good example of a team where you have the intersection between computer science and healthcare combined into a team where you can really talk about that expertise and really learn from that. And um, I think from my background as like a, uh, having a PhD in software engineering, a key part of like building systems that actually succeed and actually get into patients' hand is really trying to understand the need and the problem that you're trying to address, really work in the application domain, observe people in the domain, and really try to understand what you're actually trying to do and mm -hmm. then to translate this into okay. software. Because so often you just build software I have which to is jump in. completely new. Direction. I have to jump in. I totally agree. I think so many people focus on building the perfect application with all the features. No. <laughs> no, one of the things is pick one killer feature and focus on that one feature and get it out there and get feedback. I highly recommend that. So many people are like, no, 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 it has to be, has to have everything baked in. No, you're going to waste time, money, energy, experience. That goes to what Paul is saying, uh, just to really focus on what are you trying to solve? Yes. And what is that, you know, that kind of Trojan horse or whatever feature that's going to get, get you where you need to be. I don't know, Vishnu, you, you have so much experience. I should let you talk. <laughs> I think you uh, you and Paul basically covered most of it. I think uh, what we've seen, like we've worked with five new teams at least every year in our class. So we kind of have an idea of like what works and what doesn't just like by observing uh, how students work and how they interplay and all of that. And I think the teams that work together the best are the ones that have diverse skill sets. You know, so you have people who can code, you have people who can design, you have people who understand like the the use case really well. You have people who have sometimes, you know, personal experience with the problem that you're trying to solve. So they've, they've been in the shoes of the patient who actually is going to end up using this product. And that's really valuable experience. Like if, even if you don't have someone on the team like that, it's really valuable for um, the developers of the product to be able to um, at least connect with people who have dealt with those issues that you're trying to solve, right? And one of the things that happens a lot in our class is that we actually that the, um, the faculty that are working with the students will actually take the students to, you know, the clinic or, in, you know, introduce them to some patients who will be willing to talk to them and they'll show them a prototype and then they'll like sit there with the patient while they work through the prototype and they learn an insane amount from them. Because if it's just the three of us sitting in a room thinking about what might work for somebody, we might think we have the perfect thing built out. And this has happened to me so many times. <laughs> I'm like, I know this is the easy problem to solve. And we said, I don't even need to do user testing, no feedback, this is done. Well, let's see, let's build it out this weekend and ship it. And then we ship it and find out that no one wants to use it uh, because we overlooked something very, very crucial about their experience and like the, the way they experienced their condition, right? Um, so that, that's really, really crucial, I think. Great question. Uh, that was a good question. This was such an enlightening interview. Uh, th thank you all so much. And 
to our listeners, please uh, check out Spezzy, formerly known as Cardinal Kit. It seems like it's good. It, it seems like it would really be worth your while, especially if you're interested in building something. Oh yeah, have a Spezzy. Um, it's hard to find. There's a place in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. That's funny. Thank you so much, Oliver, Vishnu, and Paul. Thank you so much for having this game. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right, let's stay in touch.